What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod. This is your weekly look what's going on in pop culture. I'm Pat Sheehan with your co-host Dave Martinson. Dave, happy belated Thanksgiving, man. How was your holiday? It was good, man. Caught up on all this content that on my back weighing me down. But uh, no, it was, it was good. I gave thanks. I watched a fair amount of The Godfather around Thanksgiving uh, with that marathon on AMC, I think it was. Godfather and Godfather Part 2. That was fun. And it reminded me that, you know, all along it was Barzini. So it's a good time. <laughs> yeah, I, I spent the holiday catching up on a lot of the TV we're going to be talking about today. A little Drummer Girl, The Romanoffs. We also got a couple albums from Rita Ora, J.I.D. And we're going to be talking Creed 2. Did the, did the sequel pull it off? Before we do, we are thankful for anyone that listens to this podcast, uh, rates and reviews us five stars on iTunes, and subscribes on YouTube. So go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod, and you can find every link to anywhere you want to listen to the podcast there. Please support the show. We appreciate you. Why don't we start off with your guy, J.I.D., 2018 XXL freshman, dropping his second studio album and this is a follow-up to a 2015 project named DiCaprio. DiCaprio 2! This thing was hot man. I was listening at work this morning. Had to close my door because I I didn't (laughs) want the the hallway to catch on fire. Too much oxygen out there. So give me a little bit of background about this guy J.I.D. because I mean we talked about him with the XXL 2018 list but a lot of people probably don't really know who he is. He's not a huge star yet. It's funny because a lot of people refer to him as Jid. And despite the fact that it's an acronym, the way it's pronounced, so I've always been calling him J.I.D. Maybe we're wrong with that. I'm going to keep calling no him. No ID. <laughs> I'm going to call him J.I.D. Anyway, I mean, he, he released three mixtapes between 2010 and 2013, and then that DiCaprio EP came out early 2015. But I wasn't really up on him until the first album came out at the beginning of 2017, The Never Story. And that's where, you know, Ed and Eddie and Never, those were two really hot songs from him. And around that time, he signed with Dreamville, signed with J. Cole. And that's really where a lot of people, you know, got attention to him. I think, you know, main, mainstream rap fans anyway were like, all right, we know who this guy is anyway. I think the big reason he started to stand out then is because what's also present on DiCaprio too, he is a very talented rapper, technically. Dexter's flows and, you know, versatile ability, pretty evident. But he hadn't really shown through with a great project, I think, until now. But you know, it's interesting to see him come, you know, come up and get pretty famous in rap circles pretty quick just because that XXL list I think was a kind of a surprising bow for him not because he was wasn't qualified but just because he was not well known he's the least well known guy on that cover easily he's also one of the oldest guys he's in his late 20s but I think the re, you know that J. Cole signing that Dreamville push really helped him and I'm really glad that they pushed for that for him because the natural progression was some things that happened on this album which I think bodes well for his future. Um, as a bigger star, I think there's some songs on here that really show that. But yeah, no, it's been a pretty quick, quick uh, rise for him, despite, you know, being not super young or anything. But uh, what did you think of DiCaprio 2? As this was probably your, your first listen, you might have heard some of those old, older singles, but this is your first experience with him, right? Yeah, I, I was familiar with Never, and I think I had heard 151 Rum, which I think was released prior to this album as yeah. like a first single. You know, a single. And. I thought he was good and nothing about it really caught my eye beyond this is a very competent rapper who obviously is very good at what he does, but I'm not sure what necessarily makes him special. But on this album, I think he shows a lot more than I really expected. And it, it really, I think, changed my opinion of, of who he is, because when I think about all these XXL freshmen, we talk about him quite a bit and not being... I mean, I'm not super into uh, all like the, the up and coming hip hop artists. Uh, usually, a lot my my track record with it is listening for the pod and doing a little bit of research to stay up to date. I was like, ah, what really separates these these people? What really puts one of them above the other? Uh, this album, starting off with Slick Talk, is like dropping ether on your ears. It was like unbelievable, and it really like pulled you in. You talked about his dexterity, the way that he like changes up his flow. Even some of the way that the tracks like change up mid song and he just starts yeah. going in a totally different direction, totally different pacing is really impressive. And uh, his his rhymes, I mean, there wasn't really one song on here where I was like, oh, that was pretty lame. I think there were some that were stronger than others, but I didn't think there was a bad track on this. What tracks or what parts of the album really stood out to you? Yeah, so I think, you know, I mean, frequency change, the intro track, only minute long, um, mm-hmm. actually on second listen i thought it was pretty amusing where it's like you know making fun of rappers with uh 
extendo clips that don't fit their guns and stuff. It's kind of an early sign of some of the things he's going to talk about on the record. So I thought it was funny. But yeah, Slick Talk with that flow switch, that beat yeah. switch, uh, at least part of that's produced by Kenny Beats, producer of the year, right away starts you off and you know what you're getting into there. And then, I mean, I thought Off D's, the second single with J. Cole, which is probably the most indebted to Kendrick on this record in terms of how he sounds on that song. Mm-hmm. But that's another, like, that's probably the song you would put on for someone if they were like, why is he so technically proficient? Just listen to that. You understand. But what really surprised me, which is as far as I could tell, the first time this had ever he had ever done this was um, the song Tide, track eight, with Black and LMA. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is a clear radio song radio play from jid and he's like singing a hook and he's doing it well you know and that's not something he'd ever done before and if he can do that he can make more radio friendly music as well as to spit his ass off you know again these are two two qualities of kendrick lamar i think that would be really impressive and i think that song has great potential to be a chart song and i hope dreamville and company push that for him but you know that's only halfway through the the track listing when i heard right. that i was like wait like this there's there's growth and that's what the fact that he's already really technical you know i think i think the, the thing with technical rappers is like there are a lot of guys that come and go that are like they can technically rap they can spit sure. you know they don't really say anything or they just think their shit don't stink and like the nas jay-z comp it's like Nas better rapper, Jay-Z has more songs, Jay-Z has more hits, right? It's a lot of technical rappers that come and go that don't have hits or right. songs people actually like to hear, even if like they technically make sense and he might actually have something to say once in a while. And I think, you know, listen to DiCaprio 1, for example, or you listen to like Kendrick Lamar C4, you listen to that, you hear the talent, you hear the ability, but it's not quite all there yet. You know, they just need to continue to mm-hmm. grow and evolve. And I think DiCaprio 2 is, you know, that evolution really showing itself. And so... I think he's clearly the premier artist on Dreamville after Cole, and you know, I'm really excited to see what happens next. But I mean, you know, then a song like Off the Zoinkies, again, like talking about uh, drugs, and he's kind of referenced this in his freestyles and the XXL and stuff, but he doesn't fuck with a lot of like the mainstream stuff, but he also will back it up in his songs, you know? So I was a big fan for sure. Your point about like these technical rappers that a lot of times don't have anything to say, I think sometimes that's the knock for J. Cole, where He's an incredible rapper, but sometimes his songs are just kind of corny or they don't really hit. Um, but where Cole really succeeds is when he can kind of what you're talking about with JID mix in these these hooks or these uh, these with these really technical verses that really just draw you in and can elevate a song. You're, basically, what you're saying is JID's ceiling went from being like a decent role player to being a potential person that could carry a team or carry a label, For which sure. is really exciting. And I think that that. Yeah, more than anything, obviously, he's having a great year. What, February or March when the list comes out, he's a surprise name. And then he drops an album like this at the end of the year to really solidify his place on that that list. It's uh, it's cool to see an artist like this really, really growing. Just to shout out a couple of the, the tracks I really like, Strawberries really stood out to me, especially the second half when the horns really start to come in. You know, I'm, I'm a sucker for some good horns. <laughs> and then uh, Hotbox with Method Man and Joey, I thought was yeah. really good. I thought they both had great verses on that. I was really taken by that song. Any last thoughts on this album before we move on? Definitely listen. Don't sleep on J.I.D. No, no, no shame if you weren't aware of him. Most people don't know who he is, but I think this is that should change after this record so that's what i'm hoping for absolutely someone that most people know of but it's interesting because she doesn't doesn't have a huge catalog yet rita Ora, man phoenix and i guess maybe this is phoenix because she's rising from a six-year hiatus to (laughs) return back to music i'm I'm aware of who she is she is but i wanted to read a little bit more about into all the things that she does and i was a little underwhelmed i mean She's a designer, she's a model, she's an actor. She's hosted or been a judge on a lot of reality shows, which is pretty, I think, surprising based on a very short resume at this point. And it seems like more than anything, she's famous for being famous. Her first album, Aura, was released in the UK and rose to number one, was a huge hit over there. But that was 2012. And I don't, I'm not really sure what Rita Ora has done for her to be as big as she is in 2018, but she's a legit star. And I'm wondering, does Phoenix propel her further into stardom, or does this kind of just, it's just an album? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I think we'll get to that question in a second. But I think you just nailed it. She's just like a famous person who's like nebulously a singer. Right. It's weird. I kind of, as I was listening to the album, I'm like, nothing to do with the way they actually sing or make music, but her career is very similar to me as Tanache, 
right? Someone whose music, at least in the United States, didn't really pop. But someone who's popping on social media is at all the socialite things, goes to famous Harper's Bazaar, mm-hmm. Met Gat, all that. They're in that circle, right? And yet the music isn't really there. And I think Tanache is a much better artist than Rita Ora, but I think the comparison makes sense. And I mean, since then, what? She played, I think she was Christian Grey's mom in the Fifty Shades movies, right? <laughs> his sister, not his mom. <laughs> God, I, I, I thought it was his mom the whole time. And now I always thought that was weird. So I'm glad that was cleared <laughs> up for me. Cool. <laughs> but she's never really launched over here. And, you know, we've seen a lot of UK artists be very successful over in the UK and take a while to pop over here. Dua Lipa. Little Mix. Massive. Took a while. Then Little Mix took even longer to pop over here. And Rita Ora really never popped over here. What was her biggest song in the US? It was probably her feature on the Iggy song, Black Widow. I think that's the biggest song she has here. Her biggest song overall is probably R.I.P. on that first album. But yeah, to get to this actual album, Phoenix, I think you look at that track listing and you see that song with Avicii. You see that girls collab song with B.B. Rexa, Charlie XCX, and Cardi B. You see that Fifty Shades soundtrack song with Liam Payne. You see that rudimental single that just came out. And you realize there's no no cohesion to this album. This is not really, this is just a collection of songs Rita Ora put out to, for whatever reason, whether it's fill a label contract or do you want it to actually make the music? I don't know, but it's really scarce. There's not a lot of like new Rita Ora on this. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of songs that are originally hers. And I think, you know, you listen to the album and that kind of stands out that this is just, just an album to be charitable. Yeah. Not much else. She ain't working, bro. I guess I'll put a couple songs together. I've been recording some over the years. I just throw this out there. And I don't want to take away from her. She has a lot of really great like uh, humanitarian stuff with her status and for being uh, a young person. I, I really give her a lot of credit for that. I, I do think there's some good songs in this, but as an album, I don't know if it works so well. Uh, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing where I think this is Migos throwing a bunch of different songs on, uh, on their album to get those streams up. This is someone that just wanted to get this album out there, get those songs out there. And some of them are okay. I like. I think that song with Avicii, it's very classic uh, House Avicii. It's fine. It's enjoyable at, at points, but it's not something I'm going to go back to all the time. Uh, you, you have some thoughts I can see. <laughs> I just think that that's like a clone of that Kygo Selena Gomez song from it like is. a year or two ago. And the only note I had was vomit inducing. God, I thought that song was horrible. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing about those are is that like they're all the same. Like it's all like eating vanilla ice cream or something like that. Like, okay, it's fine. Whatever. Right. Give me give me the better stuff. Was there anything about this album that you liked? I thought like, You Love Me was decent. I thought Only Want You was good. And like, mm-hmm. and the weird thing is you listen to this album and like her sound is all over the place. There's no like yeah. identity to who Rita Ora is as a pop singer. I think she's just incredibly bland, similar to B.B. Rexa, who also released an album this year, you know? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, for someone who just had a six-year gap between albums, I think that's pretty lame. To not have any more of a musical identity after such a long layoff. But uh, the first song, Anywhere, what was that melody? Because rec- as soon as I heard it, I recognized that melody as interpolating something. And I cannot place it. But I thought that was really catchy. Um, I, I didn't figure- find anything in the notes for the album. But it, it definitely was catchy. And I think I actually thought Anywhere was probably one of the songs I liked the most off this album. Mostly because of that that breakdown, uh, it's very produced. <laughs> and uh, actually, I think one of the interesting things about this is that she's working with this. I mean, there were a lot of different people that were producers on this, but Watt or Steve Wattman um, is well, the main one on it. And he his story is kind of interesting because he really came up from NYU, uh, performed with the Roots as a guitarist, started a, a band that um, with I think one of the people from it might have been like death death leopard or something like that it was like a very like strange <laughs> like collaboration and to choose him i'm i'm wondering how much work he actually has uh, under his belt because it, i think it's a big name for him to work with and someone that will definitely propel him into more circles for for pop production but at the same time this isn't a great look for an album because it's not like you said it's not cohesive so it, it's an interesting thing to think about i also noticed that a lot of her songs and this might go back to the production with what like they had like these really like frantic parts where all of a sudden like the drums would really speed up and it would Mm. be like driving all of a sudden and then it would go something more calm and it was almost like a lot that if there was one through line it was like this feeling of franticness followed by like calmness or lesser speed to the song and that was something i noticed a lot that i was kind of 
I'm not sure if that was something they were going for. It just happened to be the way the songs were made. So Rita Ora doesn't seem to be high on our list of albums of the year. Nah, that's a no for me, Doc. <laughs> so recap, Jid, J-I-D, very good. Rita Ora, yeah. Interesting, because um, we uh, our, our little mix review i was thinking back to it do you do you feel like we were a little harsh you know a week removed do you think we were a little harsh on little mix considering um, what they were trying to do because rita aura has kind of broken through in, in a bigger way but don't you feel like these albums are kind of similar in a sense yeah i think little mix they're just better singers and they have better people around them to help make better pop songs but i think little i think lm5 is much better than phoenix i, I would no, no doubt about that yeah, I'd agree with that. Really, actually listening to this made me appreciate that album a little bit more. So that's why I was like, were we harsh on that? I can't Shout tell. out the British ladies. Why don't we move on to another British lady making her, I guess, major small screen debut. I think so. Florence yeah. Pugh in Little Drummer Girl, directed by Korean filmmaker Park Chan-wook. Six episode miniseries on AMC. However, they released the episodes two together at a time, so... It's really only three. An interesting format. You know, it's a it's a John Le Carre property. And this is kind of like the follow up to 2016's Night Manager, which I think you, you watched and reviewed for pod, right? I don't think we talked about it on the pod. But yeah, I like the Night Manager a lot. I actually thought about it a lot since in terms of comparing it to Night Manager. But yeah, that was the most recent one. Uh, got some Emmy Tension limited series category and had a stack cast on there. Hiddleston, yep. Debicki, Hugh Laurie, Hollander. It was, it was, it was good. Yeah, and, and this brings similarly some some big names. Pew is more new, and, and this is really, like I said, one of her first big roles. But you got Michael Shannon and Alexander Skarsgård is like the top line of this acting group. What, what was your impression of Little, Little Drummer Girl? I, I've been seeing some good, some bad, some in between on this. Yeah, I think it really impressively made. I think it really starts with Park Chan-wook's camera work. I mean, he's most well-known for directing Old Boy in 2003 or so. and But like his camera, you know, like when that bomb goes off towards the end of the series or when they capture um, the Saad groups, capture Anna out of that mm-hmm. car and let the cameras far back on the hill as they chase her down. Like, There's some really standout camera work in here. And then set design in general with the costumes and the, the editing and the locations and all over Europe, it's just a beautiful show also good looking actors helped that too but i thought it, it looked great to watch and just be be there and you know what, what was it 70s 80s i forgot yeah 70s uh, co- you know cold war era israel versus palestine really heat of that conflict popping off you know and that that was great and i think what was interesting is i think this is a big through line whether you liked it or you didn't like it is the show is hard to follow at times you know yeah and i don't think it's like it's not like oh I was too dumb to follow. It's like no, this the show does not hold your hand when you're a watcher. Mm-hmm. And I think even you know top critics like Alan Sepinwall will say that the show is a little confusing. And you know I've I never read the John Le Carre novel from '83, so I can't speak to the source material. But I think just going with it and just being in the atmosphere and the story happen is to the benefit of the viewer. Because like, you know I started reading recaps after each episode and I'd be like. Oh yeah, that, that's what I thought happened. It's not like I was ever super confused, but it was mm-hmm. almost like it was just like keeping you at arm's length as you're watching it. I think really the cause of that for me anyway was like the whole focus on like maintaining the fiction and like acting yep. out the fiction ahead of time as practice. I think that was just fucking with me <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and getting me confused. Definitely. But I still really like the show and I think uh, Florence Pugh obviously is the, the key breakout here and she's great. She she's mm-hmm. in you know almost every uh, every scene and she has to do a lot of work in terms of scenes on her own and stuff. So I uh, I still really like the show even if it was not as inviting and popcorny as say the night manager. Yeah, it was confusing at times and I think I think Pew really, I mean, she definitely gets the most to work with here. And it helps that a lot of the people around here, around her, minus Skarsgård and, uh, you know, the the Al, uh, Al Calendar brothers, Michelle and uh, Khalil. Right. They get a little bit more to do. But like Skarsgård, his his character is very muted. It's a very in, internalized role. And I think because like there's really maybe like four or five characters that get any sort of real time to do much in this, that really puts most of the show on, on Pew, Pew's shoulders. And she really does nail it. Um, I, I think that she's a budding star in the making. Uh, you know, you think about 
just how much she has to do like in these going in between these scenarios and it's it's constantly on this with this roller coaster for her where she's having this love affair with Skarsgård she's being kidnapped and had a you know put, putting her life on the line pretty constantly having to think fast you know, I think about the scene where um the the crazy guy at that camp almost exposes her as a spy in front of everybody and uh, how phenomenal she is in, in that scene yeah wook is is really impressive though because i think the most difficult part about this especially with it being uh having a pretty confusing plot line and just the way that the story is told just in general and, and probably script as well i'd imagine is that you can kind of get lost in this and he really i think does a good job of keeping it about the characters and keeping it about what do these people believe in and what what makes these people tick and why would someone do this and that's really what the I think they he tries to make people take away from the show and he does that really well like there's a a scene Chris Ryan pointed out in a great piece on the ringer about the the show where Skarsgård is in the fiction playing Michelle and it shows Skarsgård and it fades into Michelle in this cell and it's just like a really beautiful way to kind of like display that that duality between those two and and the role that Skarsgård is playing. And Wook just has like a lot of little moments like that. You talk about the, like the, the scenery and, and the, the, the shooting. I think about that scene on the Acropolis when, Scar- when Skarsgård is like uh, trying to get uh, Charlie to come and be part of the, the team. And right. man, like that, that scene, that's a shot I'll probably remember for the rest of the year for what's left of, you know, 2018. But mm-hmm. yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a good show. And I think there's a lot to like here. I think the, you pointed out a lot of the problems. What do you think of Shannon in this role? So he's he's beginning a bit of a mixed reception here. Yeah, I, I thought Shannon was fine. You know, I, I have a bad ear for accents, so I really can't speak to <laughs> if he sounded Israeli or anything. But he was definitely making some choices and being like really a gruff guy. But he also he has to convey a lot of the plot. He's really dictating that. But I think he really sells it when he's like, I'm the director of this production, you know, and doing all that. Let's discuss your role. Right. And then at the end, when Charles Dance come, shows in, Tyler Lannister just fucking throwing fastballs right at Shannon's mm-hmm. face. And he's just like saying how he just fucking hates the Mossad, right? <laughs> As mm-hmm. an MI6 officer. And like when Sh- uh, Shannon gets to play off of that, you know, world class acting, I think he really does well. It's not like top tier Shannon or anything. I was actually more curious to your opinion on uh, Skarsgård because this is a, a muted performance from him. And he's an actor who started off really just as eye candy, right? In True Blood and has mm-hmm. progressed there. He was good in Big Little Lies, got nominated for that. Actually, fuck, I think he won. <laughs> in the limited yeah. series category. And again, I think someone who has read the book and maybe even seen the Diane Keaton movie maybe could speak to what that character's supposed to be. Did you think Skarsgård as, um, what's his name? Uh, Becker, Giddy. Giddy Becker. Did, did he convey the emotion or lack thereof necessary for the role? Because it's pretty subdued, you know? And he's alone for almost all of yeah. his scenes that he's not with Charlie. So, you know, I'm not sure if that character works. Maybe my ignorance of what the character source material is is probably beneficial. You know, I, I don't know. What do you think? I, I, th- I actually thought he was pretty good. I, I think the thing I, I found really funny is I felt like, especially in like the last two episodes, almost every single time he wasn't with Charlie, he was waking up from a nap and just getting in a shouting match with Martin. Like <laughs> that started to feel a little redundant. And I don't know if that was script, if, if that was choices by Skarsgård. I also think for being a six hour long show his character is a lot of telling and not so much showing which it makes sense for with a limited time how they were trying to do everything but at the same time i would have liked to have seen a little bit more about how giddy got to become the way he is rather than him just being like i was in this war these things happened overall i think skarsgard did well with you know a pretty limited character shannon i i I thought was actually really fun to watch but like the thing i like most like you mentioned was when he was going up against the mi6 guy <laughs> time lannister he was just like for some reason i just really thought they were electric it's probably just more time lannister fucking baller i was thinking about pew a little bit and i was really thinking she reminds me a lot of saoirse ronan just in terms of like her spunk and i guess this is also seeing saoirse ronan and ladybird last year still pretty fresh in my mind i feel like their characters in those in these two roles are pretty synonymous but they each are are these small people who come into these roles and have such a big 
presence on the screen, um, regardless of who they're playing opposite, whether it's someone seasoned or someone unseasoned. Pretty impressive. Would you recommend the show to casual viewers, people who maybe are looking for something near the end of the year as we're winding down? Psychotically, I think about things is, is Little Drummer Girl like a show that could like 11 months is like, you know, you, you have your set of your favorite shows you saw this year, the shows you've recommended to people throughout the year, shows you'll talk about, right? And it's like, is a show, can you watch a show now that can get into that conversation? And I think Little Drummer Girl is one of those shows. That's why I would recommend it. And I think even if the show is obtuse to some people at times, I think all of the, uh, whether it's just the beauty of watching the show and appreciating the filmmaking as well as the performances make it worthwhile, you know? And of course, it comes from a great source material. So yeah, I would absolutely recommend this show. And I think, you know, it's it's another example of how the blinds have blurred between Hollywood and British productions. Like just like Bodyguard, which we just talked about, Little Drummer Girl was literally just airing in on the BBC and now we have it here in America on AMC. So like those lines are are basically blurred now, which is awesome mm-hmm. for us here in the States. But yeah, I mean, Florence Pugh, definitely someone to watch. I mean, she didn't have a lot to do in Outlaw King. I thought she was fine in that. I'd still, I still haven't seen Lady Macbeth from last year. That was her breakout. But I'm very excited to see her in Little Women opposite Sir Ronan and uh, yeah. everyone else from Greta Gerwig. So she's a star to watch. She's very young, like Ronan, and she's already quite popular on the internet. So I think she's going to be a huge star in, in no time. Bigger than Rita Ora in a year or no? <laughs> I mean, I say no. Rita Ora is just has enormous like, brand recognition, you know, social yeah. media fame. So it's tough to compare the two. <laughs> now, if she's bigger than Ronan in a few years, that that could be something. We'll see. As we wrap up this category, you said that you would recommend this to other people. Would you recommend this or the Romanoffs first? This. I would recommend Little Drummer Girl. Maybe if you want to recommend like episodes of the Romanoffs as an anthology show, maybe. I'd recommend one of those first. I don't know. It depends on who I'm talking to. But yeah, I like the little drummer girl more. That's for sure. Yeah. And while we move into the Romanoffs now, we talked about the first two episodes a couple weeks back. Matthew Weiner's first show since Mad Men. This is a series that's anthology series with different episodes that are loosely tied together with the overall theme of people being related to the Romanoffs, the royal German turned Russian family that was assassinated in the early 1900s. Yeah. The Romanoffs, yeah. <laughs> where where do we even begin with this, man? I mean, it's it's hard to talk about because there's not really a through line for the season. Well, honestly, I think where you start is is anyone else talking about this show? Uh, <laughs> this was a show that eight weeks ago was very hyped up because again, Matthew Weiner's follow up. He's despite the personal issues with with Weiner that we'll get to shortly. He's it's a hyped up auteur from the golden age of television it's his new show it matters mm-hmm. extended cast of, of studs and yet after some lukewarm buzz from those initial reviews the show just faded away there's not even that many series wrap-up pieces on the big culture sites it's just like i don't think anyone's clicking on the on the pieces to be to matter you know it's mm-hmm. it's, it's weird to think like how did this get messed up why didn't it work and i have some ideas about that but yeah i just think the show ultimately was far less remarkable than people expected i don't think it, it's terrible or anything but it just was a disappointment i think you, i know most people would agree with that yeah you know we, we talked about how neither one of us really watched uh matt i mean i've watched Mad Men. i didn't finish the series um but i've watched a number of the seasons and the thing i think i liked most about Mad Men was just kind of being in that world and i think in each episode he does a really good job of building the world and feeling like you're a part of where, wherever you're thrown into you know whether it's house of special purpose where you feel this real sense of isolation along with christine hendrix christina hendrix um in this right. house on this crazy set or it's was it bright and uh, expectation where you're kind of running around New York with Amanda P or <laughs> Panorama where you're in was it Mexico City I think it was or yeah yeah so there's he does a really good job of that but I think where this really lacks is each episode really doesn't like make sense a lot of times it has this twist almost at the end of every single episode and a lot of times you either have to like kind of like stretch yourself to be like okay I guess I can see that happening or it's just like what like yeah you know, I just mentioned the house of a special purpose with Christina Hendricks which I was pumped for because Christina Hendricks on Mad Men was like absolutely right. electric she's she's dynamite I think the episode 
gave me very like get out y type feel feels it was very kind of just like a psychological confusing thriller where i I literally had no idea what the fuck was happening by the end and like good or bad it was fun to watch but then she actually dies and i'm like is this even real what to believe she dies of fucking fright like what and i guess that that's a callback because she says like oh that that could never happen so i guess that's supposed to be like the irony of it apparently yeah but like (laughs) is that even a is that even good storytelling like I, i feel like to a lot of these like the points of them were kind of lost in some of the absurdity of the episodes. And uh, I, I left pretty disappointed in this series overall. Um, were I guess maybe were there any episodes you felt were really well done or that you liked a lot? Yeah, you know, I agree that House of Special Purpose uh, ends on just a strange, hard to foresee note. But I actually yeah. think that's one of my favorite episodes regardless. Yeah. Uh, I thought Isabel Huppert was uh, very good in that mm-hmm. and I mean, throughout the whole show this is a very expensive show uh, and you can see that on the sets on the locations it, yeah it, it's beautiful and you're in these extravagant buildings or you know in cities wherever you are and it's great and i thought uh it really came together in episode three other than that it's like an episode like episode four expectation with uh amanda pete like i'm watching it the whole time and it's just so anticlimactic you know <laughs> and it was yeah. the most amanda pete episode you could possibly have right just and- like She's just being ridiculous the whole time. And there's like twice on this series that it's like surprise pregnancy comes up, but I'm like, we did not need that a second time after episode no. one. I thought it was fine, episode one, right? Mm-hmm. And then like the only time the show got any traction after the premiere was for the wrong reasons with episode five, Bright and High Circle, yeah. where it's like this referendum on Me Too in the worst way possible. Again, coming from a creator who was accused of misconduct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like. And like you know, it's funny if you take that that those that problem in episode five, which is um, spreading false witness. You know, you're ruining reputations. You know, it's like what about the men, right? Like that that's kind of the take, and mm-hmm. you're just fumbling the ball. Even if you're trying to say something <laughs> succinct, it's just not coming right. across well to be charitable. Mm-hmm. But my problem with that episode in general, and I started thinking about this throughout the whole show, is by and large everybody on the show is quite wealthy, right? The characters, mm-hmm. and yet we don't see anything relatable on this show. And that's not unlike a show I fucking love this year called Secession. The problem was Secession was super entertaining and well-paced after (laughs) the third episode. Romanoffs is not that. And it's just like, oh, you have your doubts about your private piano teacher? None of us have private fucking piano teachers for our kids who come to our our big-ass home. We don't fucking Mm -hmm. understand that problem, you know? And it's just... (laughs) It's like throughout, like Amanda Amanda Pete's thing. It's like, oh, you're wealthy, and then you're mad about your stuck up daughter who's even more wealthy. Like, right? I, I just could, and like you've got a whole problem with like, oh, I couldn't relate, I couldn't get it. I think if if the show, if the messages, as we said, if the payoffs were better, it wouldn't be an issue. But because mm-hmm. those, that that's not a strength either, it just all comes to a head. So yeah, I was just very disappointed, man. Yeah, you know, I I think when I come back to this show, the the episode that maybe will sit with me the most and more probably for the question it posed more than the actual episode was end of the line with Catherine Hahn and uh, J.R. Ferguson um, it, where they're going to Russia to get a, a child uh, adopt a child. And right. they're the child that they're given the first time is uh, it seems like there's something wrong with the kid. And then Catherine Hahn's character uh, was it Anika or Anka is not sure um, she wants to take the kid. So uh, that more than anything just posed the moral question I think is really interesting. But the episode itself, I, I think, was a little long. There were parts that were very superfluous or just like didn't make sense to the episode, like where she's down in the bar after they have the fight and he's chasing a dog around. Like, I know that there's some symbolism in there towards like, how desperate he is to have a family and how logically or how she's seeing the world and seeing what could be for this child if she leaves it. But like, it's there's so many like moments like that where I'm just like, you don't fucking need this. Like you don't need to have the episode be an hour and 30 minutes when you could get it done in an hour, have be much more succinct and probably cut out some problematic parts. And then ending with the one that holds everything, which interesting story up until the ending, which then kind of, just uh blew everything up and uh the the story or the purpose it got across and or what it was trying to say about transgender people was totally lost in the fact that you then use their identity which 
I guess this whole series is about exploring identity in different ways. Um, but you use this transgender woman's identity to have her pull off a murder and basically like like that because she was able to transition from being a male to a female that that's why you didn't recognize her and now she killed you like i don't know i think that he really didn't think these things through think some of these the way that some of this would come across through and uh overall really hurt the series do you want to see a second season of the romanos no i don't it's an eight episode anthology series but like you said they're all like 90 minutes long so it's as long as a 12 episode series mm-hmm. and yet because it's an anthology series the whole like oh you just shrink the episode countdown and it helps but like you said these ideas were not fleshed out enough that that wouldn't be a problem and i think you just it would just it should have just been totally reworked and at this point i don't expect them to do another season because this one was so expensive anyway you know and it was a smart gamble by amazon obviously it's matthew weiner he was still deserving of that check um, and again, they greenlit the show before any allegations came out against him. But it, it was—I mean, anyone would would have loved to have his next show, right? Um, and I think people will still be happy to have his next show after this. It's just uh, this was not a ultimately not that successful, and it's unfortunate given the pedigree from all sides. But what are you gonna do? Moving on to something that was a lot less disappointing to me: Creed Two. Stephen Capel Jr. taking over the helm and a bit of a gamble with that. You know, you go from someone like Ryan Coogler to this unproven director. This had potential to be a flop, to really not land. It's sitting at 82% Rotten Tomatoes. It had a $55.8 million box office this weekend, the largest ever uh, for a, a non-animated movie on Thanksgiving weekend. Five-day weekend, remember. Five-day weekend. It was second to Wreck-It Ralph, which... Uh, made what close to 85 million fucking crazy yeah, right right behind the record which was frozen so yeah big big show from record ralph and man i really liked creed 2 i don't think it's nearly as good as creed the original but i think it uses a formula pulls on your heartstrings different times and the the montages training montages the fight scenes are still quality there's nothing really not to like about this movie what was your uh, initial take on then let, let's maybe pick apart some of the things that we liked and didn't like i fucking thought the movie was super effective incredibly entertaining really gripping and like you said more touching than i expected and and you know coming off of creed we we really got to see what adonis and bianca had under the skin but humanizing the dragos in yeah. such a way it was i think everyone's big big takeaway such a revelation to have the, that character work happen but you know you said i mean Stephen capel jr was this is his second movie after the land a movie i haven't seen and it's a gamble yes of course it was a gamble but also ryan coogler himself was a gamble creed was only his second movie after fruitvale station which was a small flick so you know in a sense they did it twice they mm-hmm. had an actor massively scale up for, for his second film and successful both times. I'm glad that they got Stephen Capel Jr. as opposed to Stallone, who was initially pegged to direct it. He directed, obviously, and wrote most of the, the Rockies. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think it was smart to have him, you know, work on this script. The story is basically all of his creation. But then have a more talented uh, creator like Capel Jr., you know, tune the movie to right. uh, to uh, partially to Kugler's sensibilities that was established in Creed, but also you know his own flair, and I think it's uh, really successful, and I'm I'm happy that it's uh, it was it's paid, it made 16 million more than Creed one. It was also skewed less male than Creed one, so I'm really mm-hmm. happy that it's uh, really catching out audiences. And Ace in the score like the first one, so it's uh, mm-hmm. going to be a big word of mouth hit. So I'm really happy that it was successful because I think it uh, really deserves the uh, the praise. But yeah, I mean, what did you? Um, what really stood out to you with this film, given that it's uh, kind of the middle story? You know, it's uh, it's adapting uh, Rocky sequels as opposed to Rocky 1 and 2 this time, you know? Yeah, I mean, you, you already mentioned the the, dra- the Dragos and uh, particularly uh, Florian, I can't, I'm not going to say this last name right, Montanu, um, who I thought was, I mean, obviously I'd never heard of him. I thought he was really great. And, you know, similar to, well, we were just talking about Skarsgård in, um, the, the little drummer girl where this is kind of a muted role and he really only gets to be either stoic or angry. Um, right. But I think he still conveys a lot of emotion through those times and through the limited dialogue he gets. And who, I mean, who knew Dolph Lundgren could bring such gravitas to Ivan Drago? Um, 
who uh i mean i think he basically is just a monster in rocky four yeah, and now gets to yeah really gets to um give that the, some some weight to that character i also thought um more creed the first one felt more like a boxing movie to me and this one felt more like a drama with boxing in it to me yeah um especially because they focus so much on the relationship between uh adonis and uh, i'm forgetting thompson's character bianca uh, bianca thank you and i think the the scenes where they really get to be just them together as a couple whether it's him proposing to her or mm. um you know when they find out that she's pregnant or when they're testing their baby i think that they really bring a lot of heft to those scenes and really they bring the emotional weight to the performance more than anything else uh well what stood out to you the most though i named a lot <laughs> yeah no i was thinking a lot about uh tessa thompson and all, all the dr- drama aspects you just mentioned and you know i the criticism i have seen of of creed one and two have really focused on Bianca and really how the movie is inherently masculine. It's about almost about masculinity, right? And mm-hmm. it's like Tessa Thompson's character is like really appealing on the surface. Like Bianca has layers to her, right? There's stuff going on with Bianca. Yet we would never really have that explored. Really everything she does is in direct relation to Adonis. So mm-hmm. I understand that critique. But on the other hand, it doesn't seem that different to me than how Adrian was in Rocky. And mm-hmm. You know, Talia Shire is beloved for, for playing Adrian. Yet, the more I think about it, I think I like Bianca more than Adrian, partially because she's just a more Way charismatic more. person. Um, I mean, she's a musician, you know? She's mm-hmm. cool. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's tough to compare the two. But, you know, I was thinking a lot about that. And, you know, on one hand, it's cool that she's like the FKA Twigs or slash <laughs> Erica Badu of mm-hmm. the Rocky universe. Cool. Um, but, you know, the, the bit stuff with the baby when they're like, yo, is the baby going to be death? And they do this and do the test. And it's like, yeah, that shit's heavy. And like, is it quite as effective as Rocky getting cancer in Creed 1? Perhaps not, but given our connection to uh, Stallone. But, you know, I still think that drama stuff really works. And, and the fucking all the flip side, like you said, I mean, it starts off and you see how disgraced Ivan Drago is. And then if hasn't he raised mm-hmm. his son in that. I just, who would have thought that they, they could have made both Dragos, including one we just met, so sympathetic, not just as underdogs, but, like, you really feel bad for the situation. And, like, it's funny, my dad mentioned as we're going, he's like, I wonder if Brigitte Nielsen will be back in this movie. And then he nudges me when her photo's on the wall in the first scene, then sure enough, she fucking shows up literally yeah. in the movie. So that was a cool touch. Um, and I think Stallone isn't as strong in this movie just because Rocky himself is not as involved with the story, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just kind of like being a motivator and doing Rocky cliches, which we all love. But like, mm-hmm. he was much more a presence of Creed One, and he got nominated mm-hmm. for that role, obviously. Uh, but regardless, I, I think you're right. I think it's more of a more of a dramatic film than a sports movie per se. But I, and I think part of that's because Coogler's camera work and inventiveness really shown on the boxing scenes in Creed mm-hmm. One. Where yeah, that tracking to, shot or that right. one take. And Cable Jr.'s, I think, boxing scenes still look amazing. They're still really workmanlike, you know? And I think mm-hmm. boxing scenes in general just look better now than they did back in the 70s and 80s. That's just oh. a fact. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, if you watch that first Rocky, there's, like, no one even in the stands. I think, like, they've updated it or remastered so that they're, like, CGI'd people. But, like, you, if you look, like, three rows deep, there's, like, nobody there. Right. And, <laughs> yeah, I just, it, it's um, it's really cool to see this this series that was totally fucking dead you know the rocky mm-hmm. series come back to life in such a strong way and it's like michael b jordan was joking on the bs podcast but he's like they're gonna make a bunch of these and it's like on one hand i don't know where where they go next just because they have been largely basing the arcs on existing rocky arcs and we kind of ran out of good existing rocky arcs uh, <laughs> after two movies that's not <laughs> but <laughs> They're going to do it regardless, so I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. looking forward to seeing what they do. Well, I definitely think, um, you know, it, depending on how long Michael B. Jordan wants to be doing this, and uh, I think that there's going to be something about, like, the effect that boxing has on him and, 
you know, being a father, does he continue to box? Does he continue to, or does he step away to be, uh, you know, be a father for his, his kid? I think there's also, you know, they can explore the relationship. I mean, Bianca just gets signed and she's about to go on this huge tour of festivals and then she gets pregnant. It's like, did she have to cancel the tour? Like, what did they do with that? How was there not a conversation between them about like whose relationship is more important? Um, I think that there's a lot that they could explore for sure. Um, And again, if you have Thompson and Michael B. Jordan, like keep making those movies because you have, I mean, two of the, the best actors right now. Thompson's having a hell of a year and Michael B. Jordan. I mean, people are lauding him as probably the best villain or one of the best villains uh in a superhero movie ever and then yep. he ends the year with uh the largest non-animated five-day opening uh for a movie on thanksgiving, <laughs> thanksgiving. hell of a year for both of them yeah where, where are you at with michael Jordan these days because it's it's interesting his career arc and you can just go on wikipedia and really see how quick he's mm-hmm. risen to the level of fame he has now but I think it's it's itching to think about like his overall like skill as an actor. You know, I yeah. think it's um it's funny because like I don't think he's like a top tier actor. That's partially because he's not been in like top tier films apart from Creed. Um, mm-hmm. it, I don't know. It's just weird because like I think Killmonger is awesome, and I think yeah. some people would say he maybe overacted a little bit. Uh, then I think the best way to describe it is just like having him act next to Chadwick Boseman and Angela Bassett and all these other like classically trained stud actors. The cracks show a little bit for MBJ, but that's fine. So I, it's just interesting seeing him becoming such a mega star because I'm really curious to see what he does next, given that he's kind of a unique case. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely have MBJ season pass. I do think he can be a bit one note sometimes. You know, where, yeah, uh, especially if you think about both Killmonger and Creed, I feel like they're, these characters have a lot of similarities. Uh, if you really break it down, um, apparently he has a movie coming out, or maybe it already came out, where he's playing a lawyer, which I'm yeah, really interested to yet. see. Yeah, I'd like to, see, so I'd like to see that because I think that, uh, especially because it seems like the story is going to be about a defense attorney who helps people get off for crimes that they didn't commit. I think that that could be really interesting look that could maybe propel him to a bigger uh bigger profile which i mean is crazy because he's <laughs> enormous already uh but you know i i, I think more than anything um he's just bankable which right. uh sure i was trying to think like which stars like who's really like better a better actor than him right now well like and it is interesting to think about in the scope of young american actor Exactly. We don't, we don't have a lot of stud Americans. Like Chalamet just got here. He's like twenty, mm-hmm. what, twenty three, twenty two, or twenty, whatever. Yeah. He's young. He's young, and he still hasn't a box office draw or earner yet. Mm-hmm. You know, all the stud young actors have been British for whatever reason. Right. So and I think his stats as an American is is honestly important to his career, his career arc. Yeah, and I, being black as well. I mean, yep. that's huge. So, uh, I mean, I. Th- Michael B. Jordan, people fucking love him. Yeah, how is he not sexiest man alive? Shout out Idris Elba. He's got that <laughs> salt and pepper going on, but Michael B. Jordan, I mean, if he can make having scars all over your body like look good, I mean, goddamn. God. He's so fucking good in that movie. <laughs> um, any last thoughts on Creed? So, uh, what did you think of the, the training montage? Oh, in uh, the in desert? The desert. That was fucking awesome. The, shit, <laughs> yeah. the tire? Yeah. Um, the only thing that I thought was a little off was the whole like um, neck raising harness. Way too much weight. You cannot actually do that with that much weight. Other than that, I thought the movie was pretty realistic. I thought um, the the way they they did the first fight where they had uh, Victor get DQ'd for the cheap shot mm-hmm. when Adonis was on his knee. I thought it was a really smart way to frame it so it like makes sense in like boxing uh, yeah. realm how he would they would fight again. You know, I, I like the way they did that. Um, also shout out Max Kellerman. He's in the movie even more this time. And he obviously he <laughs> covers box. He's covered boxing for years professionally, yeah. but I thought he was awesome. Uh, and not quite as good, but it reminds me of in Creed one where, uh, Kornheiser and Wilbon do a whole fake PTI bit about, uh, yep. 
Adonis Creed once he gets masses of Creed. And like these like fake sports stuff are awesome. Like really yep. smart. <laughs> Andrew uh, Gridadaro of The Ringer uh, on the exit survey said um, it's somehow Max Kellerman got like the fourth most lines in Creed. I don't know how, but I loved it. it <laughs> but that really made me laugh because like shout out Max Kellerman. I mean, yeah. the dude's just grinding at this point. Um, also, I, I got to say, um, I thought Jaden Smith's icon drop for uh, Adonis's entrance. Yeah, when it was all dark. I thought that was fucking perfect. And I was so hyped for that. It was a great song choice. Um, <laughs> and I mean, yeah, I think uh, it, it's 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 kind of surprising how great it is, but it's a yeah. fantastic film. One last thing. Uh, did you catch the doctor's name when he after the fight with Victor the first time? No, I don't remember. I don't know if I heard this correctly, but I'm pretty sure the doctor's name was Dr. Evil. And like that really took me out of the movie for a second because I was like, wait, I can't be true. <laughs> Doctor- no way. I mean, I got I, I'm going to look it up after Twitter search that someone has yeah. to have said something. Um, but I was like, God damn. Did, did you have any favorite quotes or lines or moments or anything like that? This one? Uh, just, I, I think more than anything, just when at the end, when uh, Dolph Lundgren grabs, you know, Victor and he's like, it's okay like that that's right. enough or something like that like i thought that was probably it. but yeah. what about you you obviously yeah, th- have one in mind I, I think that whole that whole ending actually with uh dolph uh with ivan throwing yeah. in the towel i thought was really well done great metaphors uh mm-hmm. but you know the, the scene that i i fucking adored was when they're talking about what they're gonna name the baby <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> and, you know i'm black Ro- right rocky's like, amari that's a, it's a beautiful name but I mean, it's a little complicated <laughs> something like uh becky kate kate creed yeah you know she's gonna be black right oh my god yeah. fucking hilarious that was great <laughs> did you get did you get cheers in your theater towards the end i did yes yeah same here so uh again that a cinema score it's very crowd pleasing go see creed uh we recommend it um what do we got for next week dave yeah next week we uh don't have any major films like creed or wreck it ralph or fantastic beasts I think the favorite is really starting to open up the Yorgos movie that he only directed this time, did not write it, but that's with Olivia Coleman, Rachel Wise, and Emma Stone, and great reviews, great performances from what we know, so I'm excited to see that. So we'll talk about that at some point, hopefully, but nothing really major on the film front or the TV front. But four big uh, music records, Earl Sweatshirt, some rap songs, the newest to this list, excited as hell for Earl's return, Meek Mill, fourth album championships first mm-hmm. album since he got out of jail so i'm sure he'll have some things to say on that uh lesia cara who's you know we talked a lot about pop recently but she's kind of like alternative pop yet still a streaming giant so i'm excited to see what she does on this second or third record of hers and then also your favorite rock band the 1975 are back with their third album all right <laughs> let's see if they have any semblance of rock music left but we'll find out soon <laughs> uh, i'll let you talk about that one day <laughs> but until next week follow us at nostalgia pod on twitter again go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod follow us any way you want to to listen and uh, give us a rating of five stars on itunes give us a follow on our subscription on youtube and share us with friends we appreciate you we're grateful for you next week will be in december last month of the year get those lists ready peace out and-